Coming up next, the booking gets into the summer spirit. Everybody, welcome to the Booking. My name is Nathan Albertson. and I am your humble and obedient host, joining you for yet another episode. Are we going to call this an episode? Yeah, we'll call this an episode. I think, but it is a rather atypical episode in that I am all alone. There is no one here. Jacob Menzel is on vacation right now with his family. He likes to go to Lake Michigan, and they are no doubt cavorting in the sand dunes even as we speak. Brandon Chastine had surgery as we alluded to before and so he is not here and so i'm flying solo this should be interesting and hopefully we will never do this again hopefully this is the first and last time that i will do the show alone certainly do not want to make a habit out of it but i thought that you the listener deserved some content and so i'm gonna provide it to you i think we'll just try and have a mellow summer episode just me and you the listener just kind of chillaxing and enjoying our summer. So here's what you do. You fix yourself a Cuba Libre or a Mai Tai or a margarita and you go out and you sit, you change into your, your bathing wear and you sit on the beach and you listen to the podcast in your blanket as the sun dapples over the waves and the, the surf tickles your feet. Now, if you fix a margarita, I don't want the bookening listeners to fix a dumb margarita. So step one of fixing a margarita, you take your blender and you smash it with a hammer. We are not making children's drinks, okay? Uh, this is you, you consult any true mixologist and, and, they, and they will tell you this. You're going to do three parts tequila, two parts Cointreau, and one part lime juice. Fresh limes, like those little plastic limes that you buy that have juice inside them. That is not what we are interested in for a perfect margarita. Uh, By the way, this episode, I'm going to count down my top 10 suggestions for books that you can read this summer. So that is how you make the perfect margarita. Now that you have that drink, let's talk about my top 10 books that you can read over the summer. Now, this is an interesting category. I didn't want to trick people. I wanted to actually provide some light reading, quote unquote, light reading. I wanted to do go with things that would mostly be pretty easy. You know, the thing kind of things that we do think of as summer reading. On the other hand, I don't personally, I'm sorry if this makes me sound like a snob. I don't personally read a lot of Tom Clancy or, you know, you see, I don't even know who the modern people are. You know, I've never read Gone Girl. I don't read the blockbuster books that are released that go to your checkout line mostly. I used to read Stephen King, but he was pretty gross and had a lot of sex and over-the-top violence and stuff like that and just a goofy, creepy spiritualism, of course. I don't read a lot of what is, is I think, the most typical summer reading. I also don't read a lot of popular, best-selling good books, you know, memoirs, the kinds of things that are on your mom's reading list. I don't, or on my mom's reading list. I don't necessarily read those things. The things, kinds of things I read are classic things that the book name covers. But I was able to come up with 10 books that I thought would be kind of fun, easy 
summer reads for you. This is just my own idiosyncratic Nathan taste. I make no apologies for it. Let me just talk you through this list, okay? So, sorry, not going to be a lot of whatever the modern Tom Clancy is on this list. Also, I don't want to recommend things with a lot of sex and violence, which uh, unfortunately you'll find in your supermarket bestsellers. I want to recommend things that I genuinely think are fun and edifying and good. So let's go down my summer list. Hopefully this will be helpful to some of you. If it is not, Brandon at the very least will be back next week. Jake, I think may still be on vacation. I should say, by the way, thank you for getting us over 750. We are going to come back with Narnia as soon as the three of us are together. There may be one more episode that's just me and Brandon talking about something or other. But after that, we'll be back together, the three of us, and we are going to tackle Narnia. We are also going to get a video. Jake managed to go on vacation like two days after we made the right amount of money. So it's almost like he fled and we didn't have a chance to do the awesome Elvis elf reading Narnia in Elvish. But we are going to do that. Jake's excited about that. Obviously, that's like Jake's childhood dream that he would be able to do that. And and so we're excited about that. We're going to get that done as soon as possible. Jake is out of town for the next seven days or something like that. So don't be too hard on us. If it takes a week or two, it is coming. I promise you. And Narnia is coming within an episode or two of this one. So let's count down Nathan's top 10 summer reads, summer reads, summer reads. Number 10. These are not in any real particular order of preference, by the way. They are just in the order that I thought of them. Number 10. Nero Wolf series by Rex Stout. Nero Wolf is my favorite fictional detective. Actually, that's not true. Archie Goodwin is my favorite fictional detective, but Archie Goodwin works for Nero Wolf. And I've talked about these books before on, on probably our Agatha Christie episodes. But if you want a really fun read that is a combination of kind of the old school Agatha Christie style, get everybody in a room and use your penetrating insight to solve the mystery style detective fiction combined with the more hard-boiled Raymond Chandler gumshoe the world's a terrible place kind of detective fiction this is the perfect melding Uh, Nero Wolf is a big fat guy actually he is one-fourth of a ton he is very sedentary he never leaves his old brownstone he has made all the money from being a genius detective and now he is an eccentric basically recluse who tends to his orchids every day. He has all these orchids on the roof of his old brownstone in New York that he likes to work on, and he refuses to be interrupted during the hours of the day that he works on these orchids. He is also a gourmand who enjoys the best food and the best clothes and the best of life. And he's this very sharp, almost autistic-style character. You know, one of those detectives who has no real social skills, who's basically selfish, lives his life the way that he wants to live it, keeping the outside world out and the inside world in. And so he has this very comfortable life funded by the fact that he's a genius. In order, of course, to fund this life, though, he does have to use his genius. And so he will take a case every now and again. And he's got this wonderful assistant named Archie Goodwin. And Archie Goodwin is very much from the Raymond Chandler, wisecracking, hard-boiled, school of detectives and the stories are narrated by Archie in a kind of Chandler-esque way and Archie's always making fun of Nero Wolf of Mr. Wolf bantering back and forth with him 
And Wolf basically sends Archie out to interview the suspects, to gather clues. So Archie's doing all the legwork. And the fun of the stories is to follow Archie. And Archie is smooth. He's a ladies' man. He's a man about town. He's wisecracking. He's witty. He's earthy. He's like everything that you'd want in kind of a more modern detective. But he's working for this grumpy, old, sedentary gourmand who won't leave his house. And so Archie does all the legwork. Nero Wolf does a lot of the brain work, although Archie's no slouch. And together they solve these cases. And these books are very formulaic. Somebody will come to the old brownstone and Nero Wolf will grumpily decide to take their case. And then Archie will go and he'll flirt with some pretty society ladies. You know, there maybe be a little action and some different people and some intrigue. And then at the end, Nero Wolf will call everybody together in the old brownstone. They'll all end up in his office sitting in the chairs and he will solve the mystery. It's formula done right. It's a lot of fun. The interplay between Archie and between Nero Wolf is great. And the supporting cast is great. The police detective who's constantly befuddled, the chef that works for Nero Wolf. There's just all these great supporting characters. And he has a lively way with dialogue. And it's just a lot of fun. I would recommend starting maybe with Champagne for One. I think that's the one I started with. The Mother Hunt is another good book. But there's like, Rex Stout was one of those guys that wrote a couple books a year. There's like 70 of these things. And you can really dive in anywhere. They are just a whole lot of fun. Some of the best detective fiction. And they really answer my complaints about Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie, to me, you know, just doesn't have enough characterization, enough zing in the dialogue, enough color in the characters. And this is all of that. But it's very fast moving. And the mystery stories are fun. And I just couldn't recommend it more. Great summer reading. Light, fun, little ephemeral. Nothing too sexual. Nothing too violent. Maybe like 2% more vulgar than an Agatha Christie or a really proper old school detective thing, but nothing that I think would you couldn't read to grandma, mostly speaking. Maybe maybe there's a couple things. I don't remember. Don't hold me responsible for this, please. But I think it's pretty safe, fun, clean, detective joy. It also functions, I think, as lifestyle porn, as many series of books do. Not so much one-shot books, but I think a lot of times when people just enjoy going back to the same character doing the same formula when they just like to read book after book after book. It's because they enjoy the lifestyle. And so Nero Wolf lives in a very specific version of New York, kind of this kindly old New York, big brownstone that he lives in. And it seems like kind of a simpler time. And he's got these gourmand type tastes, just the atmosphere of elegance, of champagne. But also you've got Archie going on these adventures and kind of seeing the seedier side of things. And it's just It's the kind of world that you want to enter into again and again and again and again, which is a lot of fun. Lifestyle porn, maybe not the best term for it, but I don't have a better one off the top of my head. Anyway, recommend that you check these books out. I've plugged them before. I'll plug them again. I really like these books. Number nine, Stephen Milhauser. Now, you may remember we did a novel called Martin Dressler by Stephen Milhauser, I think in year two. But I want to really recommend Stephen Milhauser's short fiction because that's where this guy really shines. Stephen Milhauser, kind of a difficult guy to describe unless you've read him, but he's one of my favorites. The only way I know how to describe him is Stephen Milhauser is what lurks at the corners of every Norman Rockwell painting. Stephen Milhauser is what lurks at the corners of every Norman Rockwell painting. And so if you look at a Norman Rockwell 
uh, painting. You see that bright, colorful, lovable, homey, nostalgic view of America. And then you imagine that actually some of these hearts are really broken of these people in this painting. And actually there's people with deviant desires that are standing just outside of the frame. And there are dark things lurking behind the counter of the old diner. And there are secrets and there are mysteries that are contained within the breasts of these bucolic people, these grandmothers and these postmen and these little boys and little girls living their happy all-American lives. That's what Stephen Milhauser does. And yet he's not Stephen King. He doesn't do it with horror exactly. He just, he just, he does two things. Number one, he really evokes America, America, like Americana, America. A lot of his stories are set in the past, turn of the 19th century into the 20th century. Or even if they're not, they just kind of feel that way. They have that Norman Rockwell feel. There's one story where he just describes a red apple. It feels like he's describing a Norman Rockwell painting. I can't even remember the words that he uses, but you've never pictured a more crisp, red, delightfully all-American apple than the apple that Stephen Milhauser describes. So he paints this world, this, this perfect, happy little world, and then he shows you the dark things. Except for he doesn't show them to you so much as imply them. He implies that there are these longings and these dark things that are going on at the corners of, of our existence, and he does it really well. And it's simultaneously beautiful and disturbing. Kind of, and you just kind of have to read it. But th- those two things, there's the Americana of it all. So he'll talk about circuses and cigar store Indians and cigarettes and diners and beaches and snowmen and hotels and neighborhoods and sideshows and Barnum and Bailey and all this kind of stuff like this. He'll evoke it really well. That's the first part of what he does. And then the second part of what he does is to always show you something kind of dark at the center of it, or not so much even at the center of it, at kind of the edges of it. He's mystical without being mystical. He's horrific without being horrific. It's it's really hard to capture what he does, but I, I can maybe try and describe a few stories. So the collection that I'd recommend is called Dangerous Laughter. It's a wonderful collection, one of my favorite collections of short stories. Uh, his other collections are great too, but that's the one to start with, I think. One of the stories is called The Disappearance of Elaine Coleman, and it's about a girl who simply disappears, somebody that everybody kind of knew who just disappears, only she wasn't murdered, she wasn't abducted. The story follows our hero, who didn't really know her, but kind of knew her in high school, as he tries to figure it out, and he becomes obsessed with this woman who disappeared from her hotel room, kind of a locked room, kind of a mystery. And eventually our hero comes up with a theory for what he thinks happened, because he realizes that Elaine was the kind of girl that didn't really have any friends, and never really made eye contact. And she seemed a little standoffish, but she was also the kind of person that evoked feelings of standoffishness in you. She was the kind of person that you resented when she looked at you. You know, she seemed a little shy, but it became a self-perpetuating sort of a loop where she seemed shy and standoffish, and therefore you didn't really want to give her the time of day. And so she didn't make eye contact with you. You didn't make eye contact with her. She's this kind of a person. But the narrator begins to enter into the sadness of this, and he remembers an incident where he was walking down the street, I think, in high school, and Elaine Coleman was playing basketball, and her basketball bounced and came to his feet, and he picked it up and threw it to her. And and he thinks, you know, why didn't I just ask her to play basketball? Why didn't I smile at her? Why didn't I make eye contact? The fact is, I felt irritated at her wasting my time. She was just the kind of person that was a loner, that 
evoked this reaction in other people. And he thinks, you know, if none of us in this community wanted, I'm going to get into a spoiler here, but if, if, if we didn't give her the dignity of existence, maybe one day her existence just petered out. Maybe no one ever took notice of Elaine Coleman. And one day she faded into nothing. So those are the kinds of weird, almost Twilight Zone, but usually not so overtly paranormal things that Stephen Milhauser will do. Another story from this collection is about a boy who befriends a girl. And the girl, I believe because of a medical condition, is in complete darkness. And so he will go to her house, he will walk up to her room, he will walk into the darkness, he will hear this voice, and they will talk to each other, and they become really close friends. And, and he begins to want to spend all her, his time in the darkness with her. And then eventually, after the summer is over, she is ready to come into the light, like they are literally going to turn on the lights. And the boy goes screaming from the room. He does not want to see her. And he never sees her again. That's the end of the friendship. So, And so, again, without sounding too hoity-toity, this very simple story gets at the longing that we have to be known and to know other people, but also the desire that we have to hide and to not be known and and to not be known by other people, and the yearning, but also the, the horror of all that. It, it, it's really weird, the kinds of things that Milhauser does. He also, like I said, he, he's interested in the bric-a-brac of Americana. And so, like another story in this collection is about an inventor who did not invent movies, but invented something kind of creepy and weird that was like movies, invented a different kind of moving image, which didn't end up becoming popular. Movies, you know, it's like the guy that invented Betamax right before VHS hit the market. All of that to say, Milhauser is really interesting. He's hard to describe. I think he can be dangerous because he does tap into, because he, because he does tap into these really potent feelings. Like that story about the darkness, you know, there's something kind of erotic in it, even though it's never explicit. It, it never says any, there's, there's not a single sentence that you could accuse of being sexual. Yet being in the darkness with this girl, becoming closer and closer and then not wanting to see her in the light. There's something, I mean, it doesn't take a Dr. Freud to see that there's something kind of sinister about that, right? And something kind of psychosexual, maybe. And so Milhauser can be, can tap into these weird things. I think if you're a mature adult reader, he's worth checking out. You can enjoy him. And he doesn't have anything that's explicitly violent or sexual, but proceed with caution. You can hear us talk a lot more about that in, in the episodes that we did about the novel Martin Dresler, which was some classic booking. Number eight, 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson. If you haven't read it yet, I think you ought to read it. I think it's good. If you don't know what it is, if you've never seen a video of Jordan Peterson, he's kind of become a hero of disaffected young conservative men. But he's this clinical psychologist from Canada, Jungian. And in his book, 12 Ru Rules for Life, he just talks through 12 different concepts for things that he thinks you should do to have a happy and successful life. So it's things like talk through your problems with your spouse, or do not let your kids do anything that you do not like. If you do not like it, others may not like it too. Or stand up tall with your shoulders back. What's good about Peterson and why I think people really respond to him is because he's actually taking really simple, really obvious truth, the kind of stuff that your dad or mom should have taught you he gives people these good emotional hooks. And like any good Jungian, he knows how to connect it to myth, to fairy tale, to the Bible in ways that are potent and memorable. He gives you these little mental handles for 
just remembering, you know, if I'm a guy, if I'm a, if I'm a man, I should stand up straight. I should go out to conquer the world. Every time I don't make a choice about what I want to do with my life, for example, to go to this college or to take this kind of a job, I am really making a choice. I should remember that, and I should think about what kind of choices I want to make. Jordan Peterson really talks about this stuff. He does a good job. I'm sure you've heard of him. I'm sure you've debated him. If you haven't actually read him, though, I think it's a good book. I encourage you to check it out. It's an easy read. He's not, by any stretch of the imagination, a Christian, and you need to be mature in the way that you use him. But mostly, his stuff is just common sense stuff and worth reading. (sighs) Number seven, Stephen King on writing, a memoir of the craft. Now, this is an interesting one. This is a nonfiction book wherein Stephen King provides some tips on how to write and also talks about his own journey to become a writer or whatever you want to call it. I hate that word journey, but I never know what, a, what another good word to use is. Now, the reason I think you should read this is because Stephen King is a giant of American letters. I said it. He is a giant of American letters. And yet, I wouldn't recommend that you read almost anything by Stephen King. I think there are some individual stories, maybe even some individual novels that you could read and would be good, but I've read an awful lot of it in my angsty teenage dark years. And the thing that I can report back to you is that he always includes something sexually perverse. And it would be and it would be an interesting discussion to try and figure out whether it's because he's sexually perverse or because he just knows that that's what sells or what. But there's almost always like rape or an orgy or just a disgusting sexually depraved character. You know, like even if you're familiar with the movie Shawshank Redemption, it's like they really don't shy. You know, that story really does not shy away from what happens to poor Andy Dufresne in prison. I don't know that it necessarily should, except that in the larger context of Stephen King's work, Stephen King never shies away from that stuff, even where he very much should. He's also just graphically, grossly violent in a lot of places. And I don't mind a good scary story, a good spooky story. I think there's a place for them. But when you're just trying to gross people out with gruesomeness, sorry about the alliteration there, I apologize, it's not good. And that is an awful lot of Stephen King. And so in many ways, he's his own worst enemy. He's also just vulgar. He likes to use bad words. He likes to use nasty, dirty analogies. Don't want to give any further details. Just take my word for it. And if you read on writing, you'll see that he uses a lot of bad language. And it's been a while since I've read it. Maybe that he uses some vulgar examples of quote unquote good writing. And so approach this one with caution. But if you want to see kind of what's good about King, I think this is a good place. This guy has some rock solid advice about writing. If you just want to hear somebody talk about the nuts and bolts of it in a really humble work a day sort of way, how much time you should spend on it, the kinds of things that you need to do to just stop being romantic about the great artistic mystery of writing, but actually just do it, just write. Nobody short of E.B. White and Strunk is as down to earth as Stephen King. And he has a really interesting story that he tells about his own life and the things that he loved and the things that made him who he is. So if you're a young writer and you can handle a little bit of blue language, then I really highly recommend this book just to just to see someone who's really a master of the craft talk about the craft. You know, there's almost nothing in life that's more fun than shop talk of any kind, even if you don't understand it. If you just go to a mechanics shop and you hear two car mechanics, and I don't know anything about cars, but just hearing them, just the, the poetry of their language, the kind of metaphors they use, the sense of humor they have 
about their craft, hearing anybody talk about something that they're really good at is really, really interesting, I think. I remember meeting some funeral directors one time when I worked as a janitor as a, at a church, and it was just me and the two funeral directors, and just hearing the lingo and the slang. And then I worked with funeral directors later on when I worked as a dispatcher for a, a call service who answered the phones for several funeral homes, and just seeing who these people were, <laughs> what kind of alcoholic most of them were, what it took to look death in the face, the kind of attitudes that you had, the kind of lingo that you use. It was really interesting stuff. I just, almost any expert talking about their field is going to be invariably interesting, assuming that they're passionate about their field. You know, it's, it's, when someone's excited about something, it's fun to hear them talk about the thing that they're excited about. That's one of the reasons why I like doing this show not to be too meta, and one of the reasons why I hope it's enjoyable for you, the listener, even if maybe you haven't read some of the books. It's fun to hear us when we really hate something, and it's fun to hear us when we really like something, because that kind of thing is fun, I hope. I certainly think it is with other people, and that's what you'll get with Stephen King. You'll get a eminently good craftsman talking about his craft. <laughs> Just as a random example, here's a quote. Quote, in many cases, when a reader puts a story aside because it, quote-unquote, got boring, the boredom arose because the writer grew enchanted with his powers of description and lost sight of his priority, which is to keep the ball rolling, unquote. Now that is fantastic advice, and that's the kind of advice that any young student who's in love with themselves probably resents. Like, I am actually am a genius. Uh, you should stop and watch my genius and watch, you should stop and admire my beautiful prose and my great dialogue and all this. But actually, <laughs> your priority as a writer of any kind, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, essay, technical writing, whatever it is, your priority is to keep your eye on the ball and keep that ball rolling. And Stephen King's just the kind of guy who's really down to earth about that kind of thing. Here's another quote. The road to hell is paved with adverbs, unquote. That is wise words from Mr. Stephen King, a man that you should generally not read, but I think this is something that you should read. Number six, East of Eden. Yes, we spent three episodes, three of our earliest episodes talking about it, but I think this is a good summer read. For one thing, it's just a summary kind of a book. It takes place in California, in the Salinas Valley. It's very dry and dusty and Western feeling. For another thing, it's just a rich pageant of larger-than-life characters and of little side trails and stories, and it's just stuffed full of stuff. And those are the kinds of books that I think can be good. You, you don't want to read a book like that in spring, and you don't want to read a book like that in autumn. Autumn, everything's dying. Everything's kind of ghastly. The air is full of adventure. You want your stories to kind of get to the point, I think, in autumn. In spring, everything is new. Everything's in love. Everything is birthing and blossoming. Again, you kind of want your stories to get to the point because nature is getting to the point. But when you are in the long slog of winter or the long slog, I think it's kind of a slog because I hate the heat of summer, you want a rich, bountiful book. And that's what East of, Eden, East of Eden is. If you don't know what it is, it's the story of different generations of the Trask family and the Hamilton family. We see how the sins of the fathers are passed on to the sons. And the big question of the book is, can that cycle be broken? Can someone make a choice? to be good, even though their lineage is evil. And it asks that question in a very simple, very profound, very mostly biblical way. And it's the book that's probably made me cry the most. It's uh, got a beautiful love story. 
and Adventure and Good Guys and, and Kathy, aka Kate, is one of the best villains of all literature, the psychotic woman character. It's just great. And every, it's the book on the booketing that we have recommended, or that the most people have thanked us for recommending. We still to this day have people come up to us all the time and say, thank you for making me read East of Eden. I really loved it. Anna Karenina, arguably, in my mind, a better book, but a little bit long, a little bit Russian. People don't nearly thank us for recommending that one half as much as East of Eden. So read East of Eden. Number five, The Giver by Lois Lowry. I don't know if some of you guys know this book. Don't know how popular it is. I guess there was a movie a few years ago with Jeff Bridges. Probably most people have read this book. I don't know. But my teacher in sixth grade read this book every day after lunch, Mrs. Cornwell, my old nemesis, Mrs. Cornwell, not my favorite teacher, but she would read this book to us every day for the hour after lunch recess. And man, I just remember really connecting with it. I remember being surprised by every turn in shock about the way that it ended. Now, there's been sequels to the book, and maybe they're good. I've not read them. But The Giver is just a really great book for adults and for children, I think. I I will admit I have not read it in a long time, but I just thought I couldn't leave leave it off of this list because it's so simple. It's the sci-fi parable about this society where everything is, is drained of color. Everything is drained of life. Everything is drained of vitality. The people are very functional. And there's something dark and something sinister at the heart of this society, which I won't spoil for people. But it's about a boy named Jonas. And this boy one day sees a flash of something. And he realizes that that thing is color. That thing is literally color. The society actually drained color out out because it wasn't functional. And then he comes under the tutelage of a man called the giver who keeps all the stories of all the things that brought such richness and emotional depth to the lives of people before the blah, bland, sameness, I think they call it in the novel, the sameness came that eradicated pain, but also kind of eradicated the meaning of life. I don't want to spoil where the book goes. I think it's probably obvious to a lot of people who have read or watched a lot of dystopian kind of fiction, but this is a really good example of the form, a really great example for younger readers, and one that's been really powerful in my life. So whether you're an adult or maybe you want something to read with the kids, I think this is a good one. It's got a lot of stuff you can talk about, goes to some dark places without ever being too brutal about it. Uh, kids, Your kids will be, I think, thoroughly engaged by it. And then you can read the sequels and tell me if they're any good. Number four, Up in the Old Hotel by Joseph Mitchell. Now, Joseph Mitchell is probably somebody that you haven't heard of, but he was a writer for the New Yorker during the first half of the 20th century. And he was of the same era as E.B. White. And I think he deserves to be revered and rediscovered in the way that each generation rediscovers E.B. White. The problem is he didn't write a classic like Charlotte's Web or Elements of Style. So it doesn't have that kind of one thing that can occupy a space in everyone's collective head. You know, like, like, uh, for example, you may not have heard of James Thurber, but you probably have heard of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty because it got made into two movies. And so Thurber is going to live forever, at least through people discovering and rediscovering The Secret Life of Walter Mitty and then maybe reading some of his other stuff. Sadly, Joseph Mitchell doesn't have something like that that you definitely would have heard of. It's like you're lucky if you have heard of Joseph Mitchell, but He's maybe the number one guy on this whole list that I think you might really enjoy if you just 
went and found him. Let me read the, I'm going to read the description from the back of the book. There's a collection of his complete essays and works that he did for the New Yorker back in the 1940s and 1950s. And it's called Up in the Old Hotel. Maybe you can get it at your library or just, heck, just take a risk, order a copy. I don't know. Let me, let me, let me read the description from the back of the book, though, because <clears throat> I don't think that I can say it better than they say it. Saloon keepers and street preachers, gypsies and steel walking mohawks, a bearded lady and a 93-year-old seafoodatarian who believes his specialized diet will keep him alive for another two decades. These are among the people that Joseph Mitchell immortalized in his reportage for The New Yorker, still renowned for its precise, respectful observation, graveyard humor, and the offhand perfection of style, unquote. Joseph Mitchell was a fantastic writer, and what he would do is he would go out and he would find these freaks and these losers and these weirdos that occupied his New York of the 1930s to the 1960s, and, and he would write these wonderful essays about them. If you've ever loved anything in the New Yorker, Mitchell kind of helped create that. He's one of the unsung heroes of it, not particularly well sung. So let me read you a paragraph from an essay that he wrote on a woman named Maisie. Quote, a bossy yellow-haired blonde named Maisie P. Gordon is a celebrity on the Bowery, in the nickel-and-dime saloons and in the all-night restaurants which specialize in pig snouts and cabbage at a dime, a platter, she is known by her first name. She makes a round of these establishments practically every night, and drunken bums sometimes come up behind her, slap her on the back, and call her sweetheart. This never annoys her. She has a wry but genuine fondness for bums and is undoubtedly acquainted with more of them than any other person in the city. Each day, she gives them between 5 and $15 in small change, which is a lot of money on the Bowery. In my time, I've been as free with my dimes as old John D. himself, she says. Maisie has presided for 21 years over the ticket cage of the Venice Theater at 209 Park Row, a few doors west of Cheatham Square, where the Bowery begins. The Venice is a small, seedy, moving picture theater which opens at 8 a.m. and closes at midnight. It is a dime house. For this sum, a customer sees two features, a newsreel, a cartoon, a short, and a serial episode. The Venice is not a scratch house, and in fact, it is highly esteemed by its customers because it gets a scrubbing at least once a week. Maisie brags that it is as sanitary as the Paramount. Nobody ever got loused up in the Venice, she says. Unquote. I don't know whether that paragraph captures it for you or not, but Mitchell was just a master of, well, well, first of all, he was somebody that just loved losers and weirdos and eccentrics. And he would find these people, these these disreputable yet colorful, larger-than-life figures, and he would write about them. And so these are all nonfiction essays, and they just really describe these weird characters in the lower depths of New York City at the time. Now, why should you be interested in that? Because, I don't know, because it's interesting. Because in this phantasmagoria of weirdos in this weird time period, you will recognize very human things. You will recognize yourself. And I think that's really what any great New Yorker essay does to this day, is it takes a topic and it humanizes it. And it tells you why you should be interested. There's never a boring New Yorker article. A New Yorker article could be about crossword puzzles. It could be about deep sea fishermen. It could be about computer geniuses. It could be about anything. But the New Yorker sort of has a contract with you as a reader, if you ever pick it up, that 
this will be worth your time. And if you read about how they craft and hone those articles, they do research and they pour time and energy and money into finding the right subjects and writing about the right subjects and then crafting and honing the prose, sometimes for more than a year from the conception of the article to the publication of the article. Well, they work on these long-form journalistic pieces. And Mitchell was one of the guys that created this form. And you're always guaranteed that no matter what weirdo he's talking about, it's going to be interesting. And he writes about it vividly. You know, there's nothing about the prose that kind of jumps out at you, but it transports you to this old-timey New York, allows you to meet these weird, desperate people. He's got this wonderful piece about a bearded lady who was born in 1871 and worked for, I think, Ringling Brothers and all these different circuses. And he just delves into her life, Lady Olga, and asks her questions like, you know, why don't you shave it? And he gets at this kind of weird pride that she has about being a freak and delves into her four different marriages. So this, this, this bearded woman was married to a German musician who, who like played in the band for, for one of the circuses and had some children with him. And, she, and then she was married to a balloonist who I want to say died in a balloon accident. And then uh, finally, I think she had four marriages total, but she finally ended up with this ex-circus clown. And so what kind of a person marries a bearded woman? And what is her relationship to her family? And how does she make her peace with making her living as a freak? Is she, is she proud of it? Is she horrified by it? These are the kinds of questions that Joseph Mitchell interviews. And he's very matter-of-fact and kind of deadpan in the way that he presents these people. And it's just a lot of fun. I recommend that you find this book. If you love old New York, if you love cities, if you love portraits of eccentric weirdos, if you love good prose, if you love The New Yorker, check out Joseph Mitchell. Number three, the fiction of Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson wrote a story that you've probably read called The Lottery. You probably had to read it for high school. If you haven't read it, I won't spoil it. It's one of those things that is thoroughly ruined by high school. It's a really cool, great, wonderful conceit for a horror story and really well done. And I really don't want to talk about it if you haven't read it. I just think you should read it. I mean, it is one of the top 10 classic stories, classic horror stories ever written. And yet, when I had one Jake Menzel read it, he really didn't like it because he was just like, ah, man, I think it just like rocketed him back to boring essays that you have to write for high school. So high school ruins everything. But Shirley Jackson, but, but Shirley Jackson was this sad, alcoholic, cigarette-smoking, reclusive woman who kept to herself and died young in 1965 and wrote some of the best spooky fiction of the first half of the 20th century. The Lottery is a perennial classic. It'll appear in high school compilations until the end of time because it's this story with really easily graspable themes that are fun for high school teachers to talk about, I guess. But you don't have to read that. You can. I think you should. I think it's a great, I think it's a masterpiece. But if you're put off by the high schoolishness of it all, then you should read The Haunting of Hill House, her novel, which got adapted into a Netflix thing, which I don't think you should probably watch based on the trailer I watched. It's probably really creepy and gory and not the subtle, spooky kind of stuff that Jackson does. Or you could read her short story, The Summer People, or any, any of her short stories, really. 
What, what I think I'm realizing about myself as I go down this list is I really like people who are a little bit deadpan and manage to achieve great effect without seeming to really strive for it. You know, you read like a Ray Bradbury story, for example, and he's just like pulling out all the adjectives and pouring on the writing and really trying to achieve the effect that he wants to achieve. And sometimes he's quite good at it. But what I like is someone who just kind of sits and doesn't seem to be doing much of anything and lets the effect come to them. And so that's Stephen Milhauser. That's Joseph Mitchell in his way. That's Shirley Jackson for sure. The Haunting of Hill House is this wonderful novel, which is basically a ghost story, or is it? It could just, it could all be happening in the protagonist's head. The protagonist is this browbeaten young woman desires, who desires a better life and yet was always mistreated by her mother and her sister and her brother. She goes to this spooky house and begins to see and hear things, and we never really know whether the house is haunted or her mind is haunted. And yet Jackson handles the whole thing so delicately that it really doesn't matter. You know, it's not about the plot mechanic of, is it all in her head or is it real? Are we going to find out? No, it's just a perfect portrait of a desperate woman, but done through genre trappings, which I always love. I love it when somebody can take a genre and bring color, bring life, bring psychological realism to a genre that we're familiar with. In this case, the haunted house novel. Jackson is a master of the psychology, especially of desperate women. Jackson was a desperate woman in her own life. She died young of a heart condition that came from alcohol and smoking and all this kind of stuff. But I don't know, it's the kind of thing that I think feminism has sort of ruined for us because feminism, because any woman that writes about desperate women has to be making a larger sociological point about how we as society need to change. I don't know, maybe Jackson wanted to make a larger sociological point, but that's not why I'm interested in her stories. I'm interested because they are perfect little portraits of desperation, often done with a little bit of a gothic or horrific tweak, although not always. That's one of the fun things about just reading a collection of Jackson's is you never know when a story is just going to be prosaic and when it might take a spooky turn. So probably my favorite story of hers is called The Summer People. It was published in 1948, and it is about this couple that have a country cottage that they go to in the summer. I don't think it has running water. And it's just rustic, maybe not even rustic, but just primal living. There's there's an outhouse. There's no running water. You know, they, they go to kind of get away from it all. You know, they've been summer. It's this old couple that have been summer after summer after summer to this little cottage that they own in the country, far away from the city. And one summer, they decide to stay past Labor, Labor Day, see what, see what happens in October, you know, see how beautiful it becomes in October. And what, and what, what they slowly realize is that the people in the, this little rustic community that they're in are very unhappy for them to stay. The grocer that was so pleasant to them before Labor Day now can't seem to deliver their groceries. And the kerosene man says that there's no kerosene scene to be had after Labor Day. And it just feels like, <laughs> and they slowly, surely become aware that everyone is antagonistic to them staying. And that's basically the story. It ends with them realizing that the phone has been cut off and them just sitting in this cottage in the dark as a storm starts to draw over the cottage and lightning starts to come down. And they're listening to this radio that they have. And it's this cheery dance band. 
And J- and Jackson describes the radio announcer uh, sounding through the cottage. And she says, quote, as though the lake and the hills and the trees were returning the sound unwanted. And so they think, should we do anything? Should we get out of here? And of course, the car's been tampered with. And, and now the dance music becomes a radio broadcast and the batteries in the radio start to fade and it starts to flicker. But as the darkness closes around them, our protagonist couple sits there desperately listening to the voice of, on the radio, which is treating them, Jackson writes, quote, almost as though they still belonged, however tenuously, to the rest of the world, unquote. And so this is a story where actually nothing happens. There's no physical violence. There's no apparitions. And yet the mood and the dread is really well evoked. And it's because I think it's founded on human psychology. And it gets at that feeling of being in a place where you're not wanted. You know, you know actually, it, it always shocks me when I go for a drive through the woods that surround Monroe County and the city of Bloomington where I live, how easy it is for you to take a back road and end up in the middle of nowhere without cell service. And all it would take would be an empty tank of gas for you to really get lost. And when that happens, it's spooky, right? You realize how easy it is to wander off the beaten path and find yourself in a place that you don't quite trust is civilized. You know, who are the backwoods people? Who are the backwoods people? Who are the backwoods people that live in the areas that surround the city of Bloomington? And would they be happy to meet a city boy like me if my car was to lose gas? Would they be friendly? Would they be helpful? One likes to think, but one certainly feels that tension if one finds oneself out there and one certainly has the deliverance music go through one's head. Jackson, in this simple little story, captures that feeling of suddenly finding yourself in a place where you don't know whether you're wanted or not. And it's scary. And people are scary. And she does that. And the fact that she's able to do that without any overt violence or supernatural elements is really cool. She's also just a great, I love first half of the 20th century, precise, modern, clean writers. And Jackson was great at that. And she was great at evoking a spooky mood or conjuring up a character with just a few lines. Let me read the opening paragraph to The Haunting of Hill House. Just listen to how she does this with just a couple hundred words, the story she tells of this spooky house. Quote, no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Unquote. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Doesn't that just tell a complete story? And just the precise use of language the perfect little phrases, even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. That immediately puts us in a fairy world, right? Kind of takes us into Midsummer's Night's Dream. The specific choice of larks and katydids as opposed to all other, you know, moths, other animal, other creatures that you could choose. And then the fact that the house stood against its hills, like as if it owns the hills and it is nestled in them, holds darkness within. All these perfectly chosen phrases and just and the fact that it says Hill House, not sane. Calling a house not sane. Does that mean that something supernatural is going on? Does that mean that insane people lived there? It's ambiguous, right? But it's, but it's perfectly ambiguous, and I love it. 
And then, of course, that final phrase, whatever walked there, walked alone. What does that mean? Spooky. Jackson is Shirley Jackson is such a master of perfectly controlled little turns of phrase and prose like that. She can tell a whole story with just a sentence or a sentence fragment. Another little example of the way she just conjures up a character. This is a sentence from a couple pages into The Haunting of Hill House. Because he thought of himself as careful and conscientious, he spent considerable time looking for his assistance, unquote. Just that little phrase, because he thought of himself as careful and conscientious. Not because he was careful and conscientious, but because he thought of himself. That tells you a lot about this character, right? Without putting too fine a point on it. And indeed, as we read the novel, we find out that he is not careful. He is pompous, and he did, he is actually arrogant and careless. But what a beautiful way to, to begin to lay the seeds of that by saying, because he thought of himself. And so when you can rely on a writer to use language carefully like that, and especially when they're using it and use it to evoke psychology or use it to set a mood, I just, that's crack for me. I love it. And that brings us into... My number two choice, which is E.B. White. You should read the essays of E.B. White. You should read The Elements of Style by E.B. White. This guy was just, I don't even know that I need to spend a lot of time talking about E.B. White. Uh, Read Charlotte's Web, read Stuart Little, read his children's fiction. Just read something by E.B. White because he was such a master of language. He just, the man knew how to write. I especially recommend his essays. Read... If you read nothing else, read his essay. Yeah, you're pretty sure you can find it online. Once more to the lake. Let me just read the opening paragraph because you'll see everything that you need to see about E.B. White. And it's a lot of the same stuff talking about with Jackson, with Milhauser. The fact that he can do so much through precision of language and just choosing the right words. And that he can tell an entire story with a really small amount of words, which is what he tells you to do in Elements of Style. Quote, one summer... Along about 1904, my father rented a camp on a lake in Maine and took us there for the month of August. We all got ringworm from some kittens and had to rub Pond's extract on our arms and legs night and morning, and my father rolled over in a canoe with all his clothes on. But outside of that, the vacation was a success, and from then on, none of us ever thought there was a place in the world like that lake in Maine. We returned summer after summer, always on August 1st for one month. I've since become a saltwater man, But sometimes in summer there are days when the restlessness of the tides and the fearful cold of the seawater and the incessant wind which blows across the afternoon and into the evening make me wish for the placidity of a lake in the woods. A few weeks ago this feeling got so strong I bought myself a couple of bass hooks and a spinner and returned to the lake where we used to go for a week's fishing and to revisit old haunts. And that is a beautiful opening paragraph. The man has chosen specific details that tell a complete story. We all got ringworm from some kittens and had to rub Pond's extract, and my father rolled over in a canoe. So he's immediately being having some fun with it, right? He's telling you all the bad stuff. But he says outside of that, the vacation was a success. So he manages to be really nostalgic and yet wink at you, the reader, and say, okay, it actually probably wasn't that great of a success at all. But we certainly remembered it as one. We certainly decided to be as one. And then this description of himself as a saltwater man. The problems with salt water, the restlessness of the tides, the fearful cold of the seawater, the incessant wind. Those are all adjectives, which E.B. White will tell you in Elements of Style to be careful about adjectives, not to use too many, but they are well chosen. The incessant wind, the fearful cold, 
is actually better than the cold and the wind without those adjectives. In just one paragraph, a couple sentences, he's told you the story of why he loves this old thing from his past, the problems that he has with this new thing, and why he's decided to indulge his nostalgia and return to the lake. And it's absolutely perfect. E.B. White was just a master of telling a lot without telling that much. I don't really know how to describe what's beautiful about that. If you don't hear it, maybe you don't hear it. But you really have to read the whole essay because it's got a real kick in the teeth that comes at the end. And just, I don't know what else to say about E.B. White. It's depressing to try and talk about greatness. It's one of the problems we have on the book. And how do you describe what's good about Shakespeare? What's better about Shakespeare than Christopher Marlowe? I don't know. Shakespeare, you can talk about meter. You can talk about having an ear. You can talk about all kinds of things. But the fact is, Shakespeare just wrote better prose. He was a genius. Marlowe wasn't quite. Ben Jonson wasn't quite to be or not to be, lingers in the memory and has these ineffable associations that other things don't. And E.B. White's like that. I don't know exactly what makes E.B. White better, except for that, but he just simply is. You know, I, I almost want to, it's, it's kind of like what Spurgeon or somebody said about predestination, where when he was on the outside of it, he didn't really understand it. But once he entered into it and allowed himself to accept it, it became a beautiful truth to him. When you're on the outside of what makes the prose of E.B. White great, it's a little hard for anyone to explain what is great about it. But if, you, but if the people that you trust tell you it's good, and you trust them, and you let it wash over you, and you drink deeply of it, you might just come to understand, wow, this is pretty great. You know, it's like, take something simple, like the taste of Coca-Cola. If someone had never had a soft drink, how could you describe it to them? You could say, well, it's good because it's sweet because it feels very nourishing and it kind of bites your throat as it goes down. You could describe all these things, but until you've had your first sip of delicious Coca-Cola, you really don't get it. And maybe you even have to have several Coca-Colas to acclimate yourself to the taste so that the sting of it actually isn't so stingy in your throat. You almost have to get used to something to really see what's great about it. And I, so I encourage you, if you trust me, if you trust Brandon, if you trust people, give yourself to E.B. White, man. You won't regret it. Finally, number one, and I will remind you again that this is my, not my number one favorite of these 10 authors or books that I've recommended, but simply the one that fell in this place in the list because this is when I thought of him, P.G. Woodhouse. Parental Guidance Woodhouse. Guessing that's not what it stands for. Now, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people that have read P.G. Woodhouse and know what I am talking about when I talk about his greatness, and there are people that have not read P.G. Woodhouse, and do not know what I'm talking about when I talk about P.G. Woodhouse's greatness. But P.G. Woodhouse was great, and if you haven't read him, I think it's kind of hard to describe, actually. It's a little bit like my silly Coca-Cola metaphor for E.B. White. Like, how do you describe the taste or the flavor of something? You can say that P.G. Woodhouse was a humorist, that he wrote these stories very much in the mold of classic farce with people running around and swapping identities and doing schemes, kind of surrounding the bedroom, but not sexual, not explicitly sexual in the way that a French farce would be. You could say that he was a master of wordplay, that he liked to write sentences like, I could see that if not actually disgruntled, he was far from being gruntled, unquote. Or, quote, he was a tubby little chap who looked as if he had been poured into his clothes and had forgotten to say when, unquote. Or, quote, she's got brains enough for two, which is the exact quantity the girl who marries you will need, unquote. 
those are things that PG Woodhouse did. Those are things that are easy to rip off about PG Woodhouse, especially the prose style. There's any number of authors that we could talk about that have basically co-opted that style for their own humorous writings. And every time you think that people are done co-opting it, another person will come along and co-opt it. Just like you think every time people are done writing another screw tape letter, stealing C.S. Lewis's formula and just writing their own letters explicitly from screw tape in the style that C.S. Lewis perfected, and that should remain the creative property of C.S. Lewis, you will see on your social media feed that someone else has written their own screw tape letter. It's one of those things which really bug me because I think that when someone comes up with a good formula, you should let them have it for at least 100 years which means that we're looking at another 30, 40 years before the moratorium is up on screw tape. Sorry, folks, and I know C.S. Lewis is dead, but it's the principle of the matter. So P.G. Woodhouse is easy to rip off, but what's not easy to rip off is the thing that I think actually makes P.G. Woodhouse attractive, which, well, yeah, sure, it's, a lot of it's about the wordplay and stuff, construction of plot. He was a master of those two things, but he was also a master of something else, which is much more tricky, I think, and that is inventing a world where these things felt natural and indeed inevitable. P.G. Woodhouse's stories, of course, take place in this idyllic version of London that seems to be perpetually stuck in between World War I and World War II, somewhere in there. And even though he wrote until, I want to say, the 1970s, that guy lived a long time. His stories always existed in this world of servants and butlers and bored rich people marrying each other and pursuing each other and all this sort of stuff. It always felt very natural in P.G. Woodhouse's hands, but that world doesn't exist. I mean, it's a bit of fantasy, right? The same way that Tolkien is fantasy, the same way that Narnia is fantasy. P.G. Woodhouse created this world of these effete, silly British men and the foolish, eccentric women that pursue them and the clever butlers. And it's like, sure, I'm not saying there's never been an effete young British man, a clever butler who's more clever than his master. There's a reason these things all ring true. And yet it's not that true. It's it's sort of a fantasy world, right? It's a nicer place than reality, a place where people spend their time doing useless ephemeral things. Silly things happen to them, and we are invited to laugh at these silly things. And creating and sustaining that world is a magic trick. And I don't really have any insight into how P.G. Woodhouse did it. I just want to point out that he did do it. Because what I'll see in a lot of the P.G. Woodhouse ripoffs, and I've read more than one by more than one author, is that they will try and place the same sorts of conceits within their world within a, in a different time period or in a different setting or just in a setting that's a little bit more realistic to the world as we understand it today or even the world as we understand it then, and it won't really work. You won't really buy that these people would talk like this or that they would do these things or that anybody would be that stupid. And so the creating of a world where these things happened and the pitching it at the right wavelength so that you can accept all this stuff, it's very difficult. And it's something that I think the great comedies, be they sitcoms, be they humorous novels or short stories like what Woodhouse wrote, it's very difficult to do. And that's the thing that they have to do well. So for example, a sitcom that everybody loves that does it well is The Office. And it's a tricky balancing act in The Office because Steve Carell's character is a little stupider. And Dwight Schrute, you know, he's a little stupider than what a real person would be. And yet Jim and Pam and many of the protagonists are decently smart and seem like decently real people. So it just has to pretend to be reality, and yet that reality has to be elastic enough 
to allow for these characters that are stupider than most characters that we meet in real life, or at least more. It's like everybody can do a stupid thing, but there's few people that are that consistently stupid. And so to create a world that has that kind of elasticity, it's a trick. And a lot of it just has to do with tone and what you allow to happen, what you don't allow to happen, and how you allow people to regard what happens. And so The Office is, I think, a good example because they expect you to invest in these characters. They want you to take them seriously enough that you'll invest in, will Pam get together with Jim? And yet they want you to allow for the fact that the characters are kind of silly and cartoony and there's a balancing act there. And I'd say there are certain episodes, especially of the post-Steve Carell years, where they blow it. They ruin the tone. They go too far in the cartoony direction or too far in the realistic direction even sometimes when the office would become too dark and mean and real. It wasn't often, but it did happen. You you compare that to the world of Seinfeld, for example, and you realize that they take place in two different universes. In Seinfeld, nobody takes life as seriously as Pam and Jim, and you're not expected to invest in anyone's feelings or in the drama of anyone's existence the way that we invest in Jim and Pam. Seinfeld is all about ephemera and all about things that don't really matter. Famously, it was a show about nothing, and it stuck to that creed. And it created a world that could contain Jerry and George and Elaine and Kramer. So you know who that world could not contain, actually, would be Jim and Pam from The Office. If they entered into Seinfeld, it would kind of be a bummer, right? It would ruin the tone because suddenly you'd have these characters that were taking everything seriously and were actually capable of getting hurt by the Seinfeld characters in a way that you don't actually want people to get hurt. You don't want to think about the consequences of the Seinfeld characters' actions that much. So you create a universe where they can get away with being what they are, which is not strictly realistic. And that's what P.G. Woodhouse was a master of, creating this world where these stupid, funny characters could all exist and could do these farcical things and could say this ridiculous dialogue. And we, the readers, would accept it as if not particularly probable to the way that our universe works, absolutely inevitable to the way Woodhouse's universe works. And it's delightful, and it's masterful. And that's all I have to say about that. You know, we've gotten a lot of requests to do... I don't know if we've gotten a lot, but we've gotten some requests to do P.G. Woodhouse, and I don't think we probably will, because what are you supposed to say about a book like Code of the Worcesters or one of the Jeeves and Worcester stories or Smith stories or whatever? What, 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 as a podcaster, what are you supposed to talk about? It's funny... Either you laughed or you didn't. You can talk, maybe you could admire some of the structure, the way that he structures the farce, and you could admire some of the one-liners and say which ones are your favorites. But really, there's not a lot to talk about. It's pretty ephemeral stuff. Wonderful, delightful, good beach reading. Not much more to say about it than that. I guess Brandon could do a fun context. He could talk about P.G. Woodhouse's life, the renowned Nazi sympathizer, or so they said of him. Not not without controversy, P.G. Woodhouse's life, but you can look that up on Wikipedia and have a grand old time reading about that. You don't need Brandon for that particular one, so I don't think we'll ever do P.G. Woodhouse, but hey, I've done it now. Yay me. That brings us to the end of this little list of fun things to read this summer. Hopefully you got some nice suggestions in there, or I inspired you to read these, read some stuff. Maybe I inspired you to shut this podcast off and you're not listening to this part. I know it would have been nice to have Brandon and Jake. Don't worry, folks. I have no intention of making a habit of this. It's much more fun to do it with those guys, but I had a little fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you enjoyed your margarita.
Booking was written and produced and just everything by Nathan Alberson today. Because that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. All right, folks. Be back next week with Brandon. I think we'll talk some more about poetry, maybe. We'll have some fun one way or another. I've got some things up my sleeve, and Brandon's got some things up his sleeve for you. Then Jake will be back the next week, hopefully after that, to get you some Narnia. Looking forward to that. You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash the booking and thanks for listening and i also want to thank well you know robert Rundle, the lovebirds the artful anthony dodger little anthony cigar show the immortal chelsea e Jim beam little annie oakley lily of the valley and ernesto the lovebirds the inscrutable jenny z the keith master david's mighty men trucking john and jill and little baby max jay and katie who are cold in love cheese my beloved mother beth console prime blue adam the smasher of worlds galactic princess emily fletcher the well-bedraggled wizard of yore jeremy the dark-hooded lord of death nathan not me the incandescent meredith maya Ryan the Red Avenger, Judith of the Ladies of Justice, Danny the Dude, DJ Sammy G, Benny and Danny Tiberius, Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds, and Professor and Lady X for their patronage. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Hey, what are your favorite summer books? What would you recommend that somebody catch up with this summer? Why don't you tell me somehow? Email me or something. I like to hear from you, folks. If you have any thoughts about what we said, you should find the contact form at warhornmedia.com and send us your thoughts, and maybe we'll address them. I don't know. Thanks for listening.